What I like to be is a problem solver. And I think that it's very easy, or certainly easier, to point out where people have gone wrong. And people love to suggest, you know, or love to sort of point out and critique everything without being constructive about their critique or without actually offering a solution to the problem. And, you know, certainly as a photographer, in any given situation, and as a creative as well, you're going to hit bridges, hurdles, you're going to see things that don't work. You know, you can just point them out, but much more useful is how do you fix it? How do you get over it? How do you deal with it? And, you know, it could be anything. You could want to do a photo shoot and you've got a creative that suggests it's bright and sunny. Yeah, when it comes to the shoot day, it's raining and miserable. What are you going to do? You know, so you have to go with the flow, go with the punches. And it's not about how you fall, it's about how you pick yourself up, right? And dust yourself off and, and take the next step. So I think that's always been how I've sort of dealt with things. And I'm certainly very aware and, you know, there's a lot of drama in the fashion industry. But I've not really done that drama myself, but I've been very good at managing it. And maybe because I grew up in a very dramatic family that makes me very good at dealing with divas, maybe. I don't know. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to a Fashion Moment podcast. Whether you're a fashion lover or just fashion curious, welcome. I literally love bringing you one-on-one interviews week after week with your fashion favorites. I get inspired every time, and I hope you do too. This podcast is not sponsored, and all of us here are freely giving our time because we all believe in this, and we love it. I would love to continue this great work and bring you even more content, exclusive features, and live events in the years ahead. If you love the podcast or just want to support, buy me a coffee. Yes, a coffee. You can visit buymeacoffee.com slash a fashion moment to become a fashion friend for one coffee a month, $5, or click the support tab to grab any amount you like. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash a fashion moment. Thank you for supporting us. Now on to the show. Nigel Barker is a photographer, TV personality, and philanthropist known for his breathtaking photos and his iconic role as a judge on America's Next Top Model, which was a televised model competition show hosted by supermodel Tyra Banks. Born in London, Barker hit the fashion scene as a model after winning a televised model competition. I know. So he knows all about the process. He would later move to New York City and eventually teach himself the fundamentals of photography by observing the sets, production details, and logistics at his modeling shoots. Nigel used what he learned and eventually became one of the most sought-after photographers in the world. In addition to his many talents, Barker has directed and worked on several films, including humanitarian documentaries like A Sealed Fate and Haiti, Hunger and Hope. Nigel recently launched a podcast with his childhood friend, Tom Astor, called Shaken and Stirred, which is available on all major podcast platforms. I have the honor of chatting with Nigel about his iconic career in the fashion industry, the complexities of identity, and the importance of family, along with an update on his recent work with the Special Olympics. Check it out. Hello. Hi there. How are you doing? Good. How are you? 
I'm very well, thank you. Um, I'm loving the situation behind you. Of course, you would have a fabulous like array of photos in a really cool way. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Super cool. Well, I'm so excited that you're here um, on a fashion moment. Love your work like since day one. And it's just been really interesting just delving into your journey. So I can't wait to like chat about it. So how are you, well, by the way? It. Like, how, how's it going during the pandemic? Like, what's going on? How are you? Being very well, thank you. Very well. It's, uh, to be honest, sort of guiltily have, have enjoyed um, a lot of private time with my family and, you know, and all that kind of thing. And luckily being healthy all round, which has been nice. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it gives you time to reflect, I think, on yeah. how lucky you are. And how, certainly we feel very lucky to have, you know, everything that we have had and, and enjoyed in our life so far and, and our successes. And, and then just to sort of realize that the value of every moment that we have um, on this planet that we have. So it's sort of just really, you know, we, we live in the Catskill Mountains and, and it's a beautiful part of the world and it's slower up here than it is in the city and, and, and many other places that I spend a lot of time. So it's, it's nice to be able to, to, to relax here, to be honest with you. Ah, I love it. I love it. Well, let's get to it. Let's start from the beginning, Nigel. So what was life like growing up in London? And you had like five siblings? Like, are you the youngest or were you like somewhere in the middle? I am the fifth. So I have a, I have a, I had a younger sister. My younger sister passed away, but oh my God. So I was one of six. But, um, but uh, anyway, I certainly had a very eclectic childhood. Um, you know, it's, my parents both had, two children from previous marriages and they got together and they had myself and my sister. Um, wow. So, you know, it, it was a, a very um, interesting kind of growing up with lots of brothers and sisters from lots of marriages. Uh, it was uh, my parents are both passionate people. So it was, it was quite a rowdy um, <laughs> childhood, you know, at the same time, I remember being able to sort of, you know, basically disappear most of the day without my parents knowing whether I was gone or not, as long Jealous. as I showed up for dinner and, you know, was checked out, you know, but, but my grandmother lived with us. My wow. aunt lived with us. Um, we had, at one point, I think we had, I want to say 15 dogs. I mean, it was crazy. We had just animals everywhere, oh, as well as cats and rabbits and budgerigars and parrots and fish and you name it it was like a menagerie gerbils i mean i have oh no idea God. what my parents were thinking I mean, it was like a madhouse um but we loved it and i also went to a boarding school so i was educated in an english boarding school as were most of my all my brothers and sisters actually uh but they all we all went to different places which is also weird and we didn't go to the same school none of us <laughs> we all went wow. to different schools. so I, and I, again i'm not quite sure why you know when you're a child you don't ask too many questions you kind of just do um but now looking back at it i'm you know my kids both go to the same school we keep it small i got two yep. yeah, it's very different so same anyway. here <laughs> like they're sticking together so everyone living in the house was that a part of or would you say a part of like the sri lankan like cultural like norm Probably because it was all my <laughs> Sri Lankan relatives, which are the yeah. ones that live with us. So it was my mum's mum, my mum's sister, um, and, and I think that is a part of, you know, in, in the East in general, 
family is the most important thing. You know, your elders, you respect them very highly and and you look after them and they are really the the sort of head of the family, actually. And so they would take, if if granny spoke, everyone else would go quiet. Yes. You know, you didn't speak over her, you know, she, or anything like that. So it was all very, that, that's how I grew up. And, um, you know, and I grew up cooking in the kitchen with gran- grandma, granny, and my mum and my aunt. And, you know, that, that's how so many of the stories were passed down. That's how the recipes wow. are passed down, you know, and how many, you know, family stories that you hear and over cooking a curry or something. And, and I think that's such an integral part of your childhood it are those moments, those me- memories, which certainly, you know, illustrate my, my childhood Im- immensely. And, you know, it was such a, it was a very, it was, it was a good childhood. I mean, I had, yeah. it was, I had a good childhood I'm, for me personally. I mean, all my brothers and sisters had different, you know, accounts because, you know, they, some of them come from broken marriages. Yeah. But my family, my parents were married. So I was somewhat different and lucky. Um, and, um, you know, and, and I think also just I, I had a lot of support. My brothers and sisters all, you know, they they, they didn't all get on together, but I, they all got on with me. Mm, and, wow. And, and for some odd reason, I was a bit of a peacemaker in the house. <laughs> wow. Um, and I, I don't really know why or how or what, what, how that came about, but I just was. Um, and, um, you know, they all found peace in me because wow. I, I was the sort of the go-between, you know, I had some, I had a, I had a piece of, you know, a reason to want to, to want to be, I to identify with both sides right. you know, so versus the brothers and sisters who were like step siblings and what have you. And, um, and then I, I, my younger sister, um, she was, um, four years younger than me. So there was a considerable wow. age gap between the oldest and the youngest. You know, my oldest brother is 12 years older than me. So she wow. was 15 years younger. So he didn't really know her because he was out of the house yeah. by the time she was able to communicate, you know. Wow. That peacemaker uh, role. I can, I can like, it all makes sense now. Cause I could see you maybe even being on set where people are like a fashion set where people are like going at it and you're like, Hey guys, let's calm down and get the shot. <laughs> Is that something that translated for you in the fashion industry as well? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think in general, what I like to be is a problem solver, you mm. know? And, and I think that, you know, it's very easy or certainly easier to point out where people have gone wrong and mm. people love to suggest, you know, or love to sort of point out, you know, and critique everything without being yeah. constructive about their critique or wow. without actually offering a solution to the problem. And, you know, certainly as a photographer in any given situation and as a creative as well, you're going to hit bridges, hurdles, you're going to see things that don't work and, and it's, you know, you can just point them out, but much more useful is, how do you fix it? How do you get over it? How do you deal with it? Um, and, you know, it could be anything. You could want to do a photo shoot and you've got a, a you know, a creative that suggests it's bright and sunny. Yet when it comes to the shoot day, it's raining and miserable. What are of you going to do? You know, so you have to like, you, know, you go with the flow, go with the punches. And it's not about how you fall. It's about how you pick yourself up, right? And dust yourself off and, and, and take the next step. So I think that's always been how I've sort of dealt with things. And, 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 and yeah, I, I don't like... I, I'm, I'm certainly very aware and, you know, there's a lot of drama in the fashion. Yes, industry, of course. You know? <laughs> but but I, I've not really done that drama myself, I've, but I've been very good at managing it. And maybe because mm. I grew up in a very dramatic family that makes me very good at <laughs> dealing with divas, maybe. I don't know. I love it. I love 
love it. So, you know, speaking about the uh, cultural, uh, the cultural touch of Sri Lanka, um, you mentioned in some of your previous interviews, which I thought was really interesting, just about the color differences and the colorism that sort of came up during your time in London. So you were like one of the darker siblings out of the bunch. I'm sort of, it's what my, my mother used to joke. She used to say <laughs> she had one black, one white, one khaki and one yellow or something because I have an older brother who is much darker than me and has that sort of dark, if you like, Indian skin that you find, mm-hmm. you know, and I have, then there you kind of get me and I'm sort of light tan at all times. And I've got, uh, I have a, my a, a brothers and sisters who have, who've got really pale white skin, green eyes, but dark hair. And then I've wow. got a my full sister is a redhead with, with green, blue eyes, with freckles, you know, wow. and it happens. I mean, that the funny thing is that, that it, it, you know, you can get that this sort of unusual, I mean, I, my, you know, my own children, my son, Jack is actually darker than me. And wow. My daughter, Jasmine, is super pale, burns in the sun, got freckles and green blue eyes. Right. So, Wild. You know, so it's sort of like, you know, I, I, I go out and I don't even know what I forget. I'm like, oh, goodness, don't you have to wear suntan cream, right? Like, because I don't, but I hardly ever wear sunscreen. Yeah, me too. You know? Yeah. And so I'm like, sort of, and suddenly I'm having to think about it. I'm like, you're not, you know, but it's, it's interesting because that identity, it can lead to identity crisis if you're not careful mm. in children when they feel they don't identify because they're not like their parents or it's a problem or it's an issue. And certainly growing up in the UK in the 70s, um, being of mixed blood, mixed race, you know, it, it, it's not such a thing anymore. But growing up for me, it, it was quite a big deal. I, I was the wow. only, we were the only family that we knew that was like that, actually. And I didn't have friends that were half one thing and half another. They were English or they were French, or they were, you know, came from Zambia, or they came from mm. South Africa, or they, you know, they were, people were far more from a country. Um, and that we, in all that's not to say we didn't have ethnic groups in London, of course we did, but it was more like, a, if you like, a salad bowl where you have all the ingredients, <laughs> but they're all separate versus a soup, which it's like today where the ingredients run into one another and you can't yeah. tell one from the other, right? So, you know, and I remember first coming to New York for the very first time and seeing, you know, black people with green eyes and, and saying, my God, how beautiful they are. What is that? You know, who are they? <laughs> like, what, how does that happen? Like, I've never seen someone like that before. Wow. Um, I've never seen someone who looked like me before. And yet people in, America, in New York were saying, oh, you're English. And I'm like, wow. Damn. Yeah, and they'd be like, like, "Yeah, you're English. Your voice," and I was like, "Yes, my voice," because I'd spent my entire childhood growing up with people saying, "And where are you from?" And I was like, "Um, "London," and they were like, "Well, no, where are you from? Where are your parents from?" Wow. Because so you you spend your life realizing that you're not from there. Wow. As much as you think you're from there, you're not, and so apparently you're not. At least, of course, now things have changed a lot since then. But it was one of the reasons why at 18 I left the country and never looked back. Wow. Wow. You know, I have to ask because my children are actually um, half Afghan. And one thing their their grandparents are always like, you're American, Kirsten. I was like, I'm just American. Like, this is amazing. But just in terms of like raising children with those like different identities, like, do you have any advice for like how, how to ensure that they're okay and don't get you know, bogged down by this whole, like, 
you know, you have to check this box or that box, or, you know, you have to be that one thing or that other thing. Like, I feel like there's just so much of that, that, that goes on in terms of like having to define your identity. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I'm not sure that I have. I'm like, what do you do, Nigel? I'm like, what what do you do? I'm taking notes. (laughs) No, look, I'm not sure that I have all the answers. I can tell you what I've seen and and I can tell you what I try to do to some extent, but it's not even that I need to really try to do it. I kind of just do it partly because I'm not really anything. I'm just a person. And I like to tell my kids that I'm just a human being and that I love that. And I, and I, you know, and I try not to see color really. And I, and I, and I say that when as much as because you know I don't pick my friends that way, and I don't pick the people I love that way, and I don't love that way, you know, and I don't love that way because of color or because of religion, really, or or because of sexuality or gender or anything. I I love because someone is kind and someone's nice and they make me laugh and 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 we get on and you know and I have people from every ilk of every from every place of every shape and size and. They're my friends. They're my people. They're my family, right? And I think that you have to lead that way. But I feel that, you know, certainly with my family, personally, my, you know, growing up in that moment where, you know, my mum and my aunt and my grandmother all came over from Sri Lanka in the 60s to escape um, their own family and to start again in the UK wow. because they'd been sort of persecuted because, you know, my grandmother had married out of you know without anyone's permission she'd had children without anyone's permission she cut her hair she drove a car she was the first woman in in sri lanka to drive a car uh, ever my grandma and she was considered a renegade she was you know now we see her as an empowered woman you know and she was then but she was a rebel and she and she paid a price for it she had to leave the country leave her family start again you know and they and they they did that by making money from the modeling industry so my mother was a miss miss world contestant Miss Sri Lanka in um, 1967 I think it was and you know that led her to modeling in the UK and 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 they lived off the entertainment industry which is how I got involved and that was my first kind of sort of feeling of an experience of it was through my mother's life my grandmother who was a very educated woman um, really couldn't even hardly get a job in the UK because she was from Sri Lanka you know, they weren't wow. going to hire someone who was from Sri Lanka to do much more than secretarial work when really she was more qualified than half of the CEOs she was working wow. for. You know, and she had wow. a great education and all the rest of it. Um, and likewise, my mother as a model really only did jobs doing things that, you know, someone of, who looked like a Sri Lankan person would do. And, you know, and, and funnily enough, they're only until historically recently, people of Asian descent really didn't do much work in the modeling industry. You know, yeah. it was, it's, it's, you know, and we talked about it on top model. I mean, how many contestants did we have that were Indian? Very few, one, two, I think tops. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> and it was, and it, and it's, it's weird. You're like, well, where are they in the industry? But it's, it's because as a, as a country, India and that part of the world, you know, they culturally, didn't look at fashion as something of importance in the same way. And they thought, and they looked down at people that would perhaps model as something that would, that was sort of more akin to, you know, selling yourself and, and, sh- and showing wow. yourself. And that wasn't considered to be, you know, religiously appropriate, culturally appropriate. Um, of course, a lot of that's changed now. Um, yeah. But growing up in that, it was very different. So going back to your original question, I, I, I really try to lead with love and just yeah. not talk about, what color I am or what color someone else is or not even go there. It's not even a topic of conversation. It's what do they have to offer? You know, what are their talents? 
one of their skill sets you know how uh, you know do you enjoy their com- do we enjoy their conversation do we like people do we why do we like them and what is it about them that makes them fun and interesting and exciting and 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 that's it really and you know, I, I think I grew up in a, in a in a family that my own personal family, where our religion, our, our, our race rather, played a very large part for some mm-hmm. reason, and we were constantly being ID'd. And, wow. I, and I know my younger sister Marianne, who was like I mentioned, pale white, freckles, red hair, green eyes. You know, she took her life in the end, um, oh, and sorry. you know she had suffered a lot of mental wow. issues. And she herself put it down to um, her having identity crisis. Wow. She wanted to be Sri Lankan. She wanted to be like her mother. Wow. Um, She wanted to be dark-skinned, and she wasn't. She got very upset that she burnt in the sun. She got very upset that she didn't have dark... And I think that, you know, there were elements of our family that were like, we're better than you because we're brown. We're better than you because we don't burn. We're better than you because we're more like mum. Wow, uh, and that's and and you know, and it, that and there was an element of that in, in our family, and I and not, this is not to blame anyone at all because we were all kids and growing up and doing our thing, and it was a very unusual time, you know, growing up in the seventies where all of this was new, but it it, go, it went both ways, and I know because she moved, she ended up being the only member of my family who actually spoke Sri Lankan. Wow, she she studied South Asian studies at college. And she married a Sri Lankan man and moved there. Wow. Right? My sister with red hair, white skin, and oh blue eyes wanted to be a Sri Lankan. Wow. She dressed in saris and, you know, she did everything she could to be a Sri Lankan. And the wow. tragedy of it all was that she was not accepted by the Sri Lankan community who were looking at her going, who are you? You're some white girl. What are you doing? Why are you doing in Sri Lanka? And she's like, no, my mother's Sri Lankan. And, and of wow. course, and then the English people, she was like, but I don't want to be white and I'm not white. And, and, and so she was, so it was t- tore her to pieces. And eventually, like I said, she, you know, she over de- overdosed. So it was oh my God. It's a story of total tragedy. Yeah. Um, but it's also helped lead, helped me lead my own life in a different way. And I, you know, I constantly remember her and, 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 you know, channel her and what she would think and do and say these days, which, you know, she was, a, she was an extraordinary person too. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. Like, whoa, wow. What was her name? Marianne. Marianne. Ah, Like the Calypso song named after that. (laughs) So you, you would go on to actually start your own career. So you were on a, on a, on a famous show. What, what was that? America's Next Top Model? Is that what we're talking about? <laughs> no, we're talking about you and your modeling career, oh, mister. Modeling you career. were on TV. Like, what was the show and how in the world did you get on it? And how did it change your life? <laughs> so, you know, I, I got I got it. My, it was funny. I, I had never real any aspirations of becoming a model. That was never anything I'd wanted wow. to do. Um, I was interested in the fashion industry. And to be honest, I... My, you know, my mother talked about her industry, her business, but she never sort of said you should be a model or you should do any of those things. I first decided to get interested in fashion. My brother became a fashion designer um, when he was in his early twenties, and he had a company no called Yeah, called Zymarker, and he was doing all this cool stuff. And you know, he knew that I was into it. I want, I really, really, you know, loved my brother and thought he was just amazing and wanted to be like him. And um, I ended up studying fashion design, pattern cutting, tailoring, weaving at school, as well as the sciences, because my dad wanted me to become a doctor. So I, and I was good at science. So I studied biology, chemistry, physics, and maths 
in order to become a doctor. But on the side, I did all these other extracurricular activities. And I remember my dad telling me, you know, when you grow up, why are you doing all this sewing and stuff? You know, what, what are you doing that for? And I was like, well, dad, when I become a plastic surgeon, I'm going to be the best at stitching people yes! up. And that's why I'm learning stitching and sewing. And he was like, oh, that's brilliant. He thought that yes. was so good. So he endorsed it completely. Lo and behold, you know, I found it very, I actually produced a hat that my brother helped me sell in the, on the high street. And I started making my own clothes and I used to make everything. And I even, not just that I make the clothes, but I made, I wove the material that I made the wow. clothes out of. So I got to learn how to weave, how to pattern cut, how to actually construct, and then I would wear it. So I ended up being my own model, and and I I sold it, right? So on the street, in in stores, at 17, 18 years old. So I had a very early um, real feeling for the business, not for modeling though, right? So, but just as that part of it. And then my mum entered me into a show called The Clothes Show, which was one of the very (laughs) first televised television shows uh, in England around fashion. And they've been they've been around forever, um, and then all of a sudden they decided to have a model search, which they hadn't done before. And my mum was like, "You should be, you should enter." And I'm like, "I'm not entering." And she, was, and she said to me, "He came and picked me up from boarding school one weekend." She said, "I'm taking you to the auditions. I've already entered you. It's going to be amazing." And I was like, "What? What am I doing?" And I, I remember going there into this room and going through the audition process and standing there and looking around, going, "This is so awkward and weird." And what am I? What is it? I didn't even know about male modeling. I didn't really even know what it was. Right? <laughs> I don't think I ever looked at a magazine to look at the guys in the magazine. I don't even wow. look to see women in the magazine and my mother. And I'm like, is this like acting? What What is this? And, you know, and I used to have really bushy long hair. And yes. all the things. And, um <laughs> Anyway, they looked at me and I kind of got through each site. They asked me to walk to all this stuff. And eventually from the 5,000 people that showed up, I was, selected to be i think one of 12 i think or whatever it was wow and I was on the television show so a long weekend came about i went to birmingham in england and i did this whole competition televised <laughs> and i made it into the top three and then i didn't win but i made it in top three but out of that i got a contract to be a model and i decided to take a year off before going to college to study medicine and wow. uh, be careful parents what you allow your kids to do because one thing led to another and i never went back did they have you like walk? Like, did they did they have oh, you yeah, take everything. photos? Walk. Like, so <laughs> essentially, they like America's walk, sex model. <laughs> exactly. Wow. No, they gave us a makeover. They cut my hair. They cut my hair really short, and I didn't know what to do. I was like oh panicking, God. but I kind of went with it. I mean, listen, as a judge on America's Next Top Model, there has never been a judge who is more in tune with the contestants than me. And I always yeah. say, I wonder whether that was why I got to stay for so long. It's because I completely sympathized with the contestants because yeah. I was them. And and wow. I was, the funny thing about it was we never made much of it on the show, but if there was ever a sort of a tale of how a contestant on a show like that could go on to be successful, it was to sort of suggest like, look at, look at what I did <laughs> in my own career and now I'm 360 and I'm back in the wow. seat and I'm all, you know, and here I am as, you know, back on a show, which is where I started, you know. Wow. That is wild. So you get signed, you become a model, you're doing well. Uh, what were some of the campaigns that you were in? I'm just, I'm just curious. I did lots of things. I mean, all kinds of campaigns from Armani to Valentino to, you know, working with, Gucci to work, you know, I did pretty much all the big names. I came to America to do Ralph. Um, 
And, you know, I, I did all, all kinds of big campaigns. Yeah, I mean, the, thing, you know, the industry was very different back then too. This is another yeah. thing, you know, you would go to a place and there would be, you know, 20, 30 models going for something. Now there's thousands of models going for something, wow. you know, and, and, and certainly hundreds. And, wow. you know, there were only a few big agencies. And if you weren't with one of them, you really weren't going to get the jobs. And, you know, and, and it was very different. And also agencies really believed in you, you know, so mm. if they signed you up, they would pay for your for you to have photographs done. They would pay. Wow. They paid for me to fly to countries and, and spend time there and give me money to do it. They actually, they invested, they invested in you. They believed in your career. I love that. You know, and, and that doesn't happen really at all anymore. It's it's all on your own dime. And on more than that, the agencies, a lot of them make money out of their models by charging them for stuff and charging them a premium. You know? Wild, wild. Are you itching for a good story? Laughter among friends, maybe even a mystery or two? Well, you're in luck. Fire Breathing Kittens is a standalone Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Each episode is a separate three-hour-long story, like a movie for your ears, so you can listen to these adventures in any order you like. So join us on a real play D&D quest as we solve mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. Fire Breathing Kittens podcast, fantasy action, mystery, friendship. So you're doing well, you're flying all over the place, booking campaigns, and then I believe it's like heroin chic comes into play. <laughs> so they wanted a different look, different models. And so like what happened with that transition and how did you end up making a pivot to photography? Well, you know, I think that it, it had, you know, it was more to do with the fact that, you know, I, there I was, I'd, I'd started modeling in the late eighties and to your point, you know, that was the sort of era of the supermodel. It was, you know, the Naomi Campbells, you know, Cindy Crawford's, Christy Turlington, um, so on and so forth, who were, you know, shapely women. And, you know, it was glamorous and excessive. And um, it, it was a very fun time to be a model, to be honest with you. It was one of the really very, very fun time, great music. You know, wow. everything was over the top and crazy. And I was having a great time flying all over the world and doing great shows with, you know, and I worked with Naomi and people like that with, you know, doing things like Chanel uh, and stuff like that. So I, I, you know, I, I really was enjoying the high life at that moment. And then to your point, the world changed. The 90s came around. And, you know, for those of us who remember, designers like Anna Sui and Mark mm -hmm. Jacobs popped up and Calvin Klein was doing campaigns like One, you know, for, yeah, yeah. you know, which was, you know, the, one of the very first androgynous fragrances for you know for everyone for, for yeah. one and all and um models like kate moss were rising and um you know i modeled with kate many times and uh you know kate was sort of five foot six seven years you know tall and looked like a, a very young girl who's sort of underdeveloped almost and and yeah. you know it was like that was the look that became the thing and it was like i was like i remember thinking to myself you know, because I was big guy, I still am. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm six four. You know, and I was heavy built guy. I used to play rugby, and you know that was at the time. I used to do most of the jobs with my shirt off, doing you know showing my pecs, and that was what it was about. You know, yeah. And then it was all of a sudden it was like, oh no, 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 that's not what we're doing now. Now we all have wow. to look the same. We're all going to look androgynous. It's it's about you know as you mentioned, heroin chic, which is that kind of more kind of withered way. And it was also a reflection of the times because mm. you know, 
the, the world itself, we went, the, you know, the world went into a recession in the early, yeah. early 1990s. Um, and you know, th there was a lot of backlash against all the excess of the, of the 80s. And so wow. people didn't want to see that anymore. And it was more about being fair. And that often happens. And yet I had spent so much time in the industry. I liked it. I enjoyed working there. And I, you know, I hadn't gone to college. And I had sort of, mm -hmm. and I had always enjoyed photography as a creative person. Um, you know, I'd learned to print and everything when I was at high school. And uh, so I was always into it. And I, I had a camera that I'd carried around with me for my entire modeling career. And I'd, I'd always been very interested in all the photographers that I'd worked with, what they were doing. And, and I thought, well, listen, if I had one thing I can do, if I, looking around at this industry, you know, photographers, they can work in this business forever. They don't really yeah. age out. You know, and it doesn't really matter what I end up looking like or what happens to me if I lose my hair, if I put on a hundred pounds, whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, I can do this. Um, wow. It's going to be about my creativity. And, you know, and I never really, to be honest, enjoyed the modeling part so much. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed mm -hmm. the lifestyle. I enjoyed yeah. traveling. I enjoyed what was going on. But, you know, doing the modeling part, I'm like, yeah, this is whatever. I didn't, I didn't really care one way or the other. It's like, I don't, you know, I don't care to wear clothes for other people and do all that <laughs> Not really, you know i like you know sort of i was only a piece of the of the creative puzzle wow, and i, I wanted that. to be more in control and have more more a part of it so you know i transitioned over to being a photographer in the mid 90s and you know a large part of that was meeting my wife and you know yes. and my, my sister-in-law who ended up really becoming my muses and you know really that's what kick-started my career I love it. And his wife, y'all, is the bomb.com. Like, she is fabulous. As I was doing research, I was like, oh my God. Like, she's done some really great work herself and has been so instrumental in your career and, and helping you build, which is amazing. So, you go into photography. You know, I have to ask, and I do this for the photographers are you a Nikon? guy or a canon guy or something else so i mean you know currently i shoot my main camera as a canon um mm. i've never shot with nikon um nikon has 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 historically been for sort of if you want landscape photographers there aren't ah. many people in, in fashion who shoot with a nikon you know a lot of people who shoot like if you want, you know, they go out and shoot location pictures or they shoot on you know, adventure pictures and stuff like that. The Nikon seems to be more, has been historically more popular, but I yeah. know I'm not, I have a lot of cameras. So when, you know, I, I shoot with brands that, you know, that aren't really household names, you know, for argument's sake, Pentax is a, is a, is a camera that I, big Pentaxes that I shot oh, wow. with. And, and they're six by seven type backs and Mamiya, uh, a, bit, a German company that I, I, I use a lot of and, Polaroid cameras, which of course you've heard of, but the kind of Polaroids that I shoot with are a little bit more involved because you, you know, you get a negative out of the end of it and that you can print from. And I love to shoot with the big 20 by 24 Polaroid camera, which is, you know, one of my favorites. Wow, it's wild. Um, yeah, it's super, <laughs> super fun, but very technical kind of piece of equipment, you know, to, you know, to literally just, I have, I want to you know, that exaggerating, I, you know, I probably have 30 or 40 cameras, you know, wow. of all different types. But, you know, and, and, I, and many of them just for, for very specific reasons and tools. 
and then some I just collect and I've never really sold or got rid of any of my old cameras. And I was a big Sony guy for a long time, you know, because I had a, an endorsement deal with them and they produce great cameras and it's still a great camera to this day. It's called the A900. They don't even make it anymore. Um, wow. but it's a, it's a great, great camera. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, I, so all of you guys out there, it's, 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 it's <laughs> not, the, it's not the tool. It's how you use it. I love it. And did you, did you teach yourself? all of these techniques like was it trial and error did you have a mentor like no it's funny i mean I, so i mentioned earlier that i modeled and, and i worked with all these great photographers well i kept a very close eye on what was happening um yeah. I, I looked around i always asked questions asked everyone the assistants what was going on what were they using what were the f-stops what were the lights set at i got an assistant early on to show me how to how he was working the packs um, wow. and, then, you know, and then I would, and I would often jump in and help the photographer would be, you know, I remember there would be times when the photographer would say, Oh God, we needed to go, you know, up half a stop or up a third, and, you know, but the assistant wasn't nearby for whatever reason. And wow. I was just a, a foot away from the stop and I would occasionally lean forward and just click it. And the photographer would be, and then those, some of those photographers got to know that I knew how to use it and it would, and they liked it. Some people would be upset if I touched it, but I could look <laughs> at what was happening, but I would also get my camera or my mind and take a picture of the set wow. and where all the lights were placed. Um, so guys, if you ever see a model doing that, they're probably doing what I was doing. <laughs> and then I would wait, I'd get my tear sheet that would come out and I'd look at how it looked and you could see, and I'd have my, then I would put, put my tear sheet and next to it, I would put the diagram of where all the lights were set up and how that <sighs> light set up translated <sighs> to this picture that I was in. You know, so wow. to this day, I, I still step into the light uh, as the photographer and feel where the light is from the model's perspective and look wow. around. And I, and, I, and, I, and I often get my assistants to shoot me so I can experience that whole feeling and vibe too. That's amazing. I love that. I love that. Uh, you took initiative, which is like so, it's so rare, but that's so creative. So how in the world... Did you end up on America's Next Top Model? You know, long story short, you know, <laughs> having, you know, just started as a photographer, you know, started working as a photographer. I had a few lucky breaks. I, I had some great editorials in magazines in New York. And, you know, I was shooting for Interview Magazine. I was shooting for Paper Magazine. I had some real great breaks. And I was working a lot with some of the big agencies like Click and Ford and Wilhelmina and, you know, wow. it was and I, and I was just doing a lot of really great stuff at that moment in my young career. And I had got to work with Nole Marin, who also ended up oh, being wow. in charge on the show. And uh, he introduced me to Jay Manuel. And okay. of course, mm -hmm. Jay was on season one of the show. And mm -hmm. I was not on season one. I started on season two. And they started to audition for photographers to be photographers for season two. Wow. Back then, they used to actually audition the photographers. We didn't really do that anymore. Once I got on, they, we just found people, and it wasn't as important how good they were on camera because we could work around it. But back mm. then, they were concerned that everyone had to be good on camera. And so they, I remember going to this audition. I went to his house, and you know, they literally gave me – there were some producers from top, from top Model that were there, and we were at Jay's house, and they gave me a magazine. They said, flip through the magazine and critique it. And I was like, okay. Nice. <laughs> so I just kind of looked through the magazine and they filmed me and I gave a running commentary on everything I saw. Wow. What I liked, what I didn't like, what I thought worked, what I thought the model should have done better. And I just went for it. And, 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 and then I just kind of walked away and I really didn't hear anything more. 
for about six weeks. And I thought, oh, well, clearly I didn't get the job. Bomb that. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, you know, that didn't work. And I remember one of my assistants, and I literally forgot about it, to be honest. It was, and I thought, oh, well, that's a shame. Would have been fun, wouldn't it? Wouldn't have been fun. And, right. I, and I, was only, I was only going to be a photographer on one episode. So I was like, wow. you, know, you, know, I, you know, whatever. And then I got a call and one of my assistants said, oh, I think it's those people from that show you, you know, you tried out for. And, and, and I, I remember taking the call and being like, hey, you know, it's guys from, you know, CBS and, you know, we've been looking at your tapes and sorry, it took a bit of time to get up, to get back to you, but you know, your everyone really liked your tape and it, wow. it kind of didn't, it went above the booking the photographer part and it's gone all the way up the chain. And we were interested in whether you would come onto the show to be the photographer on the first episode, but stay and be a permanent judge for the whole season. Ah, yes. and, I, and this is me. I've never done television before ever. Right. So I, I was a complete novice. Right. So I'm like, <laughs> what? I'm like, huh? <laughs> And I, and, I, and I was I was like, well, okay, I guess I'm sure. Okay, that sounds interesting because I and I thought to myself, you know, it's funny. I actually thought it's a bit of a risk because being wow. on one episode, it was you know going to be fun, mm-hmm. and then I could walk away and do my thing. But doing it permanently, you know, there was you got to understand. It sounds ridiculous now with hindsight because obviously the show became a huge success, but. It was only the second season. First season, had, you know, the show was on UPN. It wasn't a big network. And there's an element of being on sort of commercial television that feels like a sellout for yeah. the very exclusive a- aspect of fashion, high fashion, and, and that I was working in. Yeah. And, and lo and behold, I was right to some extent because there were a lot of people when I did the show that actually stopped booking me. They were like, oh, oh no, you're now, you're, now on t- you're now on television. You're like a TV person. You're not really yeah. a photographer anymore. You're a television person. And I was like, well, no, I'm a photographer who's on television. And, then, and, wow. and, and I was, you know, we were the, some of the very first reality television experts. You know, now at, there's so many of mm. us. There's so many people that are experts on reality television, but there weren't a lot back then, and certainly not no. in the fashion arena. You know, so it was a, an unusual moment. And you have to understand too that, you know, our sponsors were people like, walmart and right you know, and you know we, we weren't like vogue like we mm-hmm. ended up being you know the, the funny thing is is that magazines like vogue look in a way really poo-pooed us and we're like oh this isn't fashion america's yeah. next top model is an exaggeration it's like a you know it's like an over-the-top version of what the fashion industry is like and actually you know yeah we would to certainly push the the boundaries to, to create good television but we also try to take our ideas from the most extreme things that did happen in fashion. So they, they all yeah. came from real stories and, and, and extreme photo shoots, except obviously we would make all our shoots like that versus just wow. having, you know, because why would anyone want to see a model stand up against a white wall and have yeah, to no. It's just not really <laughs> interesting, even though that's the majority of the work that you do. So it, wow. it was like, it, that was our storytelling. But of course, at the end of the day, Top Model won the war because it went on for 24 plus seasons. I did 18 of them. And, you know, and, and we, although we started off with, you know, our sponsors and what have you being of a certain type and ilk, we know by the end of it, we were Italian Vogue, American Vogue. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we're having the biggest designers in the world be a part of it and magazines and you name it you know, cover girl contracts and yeah. you know, it was the real deal. And and I think that that, you know, people saw that and they, they didn't, not everyone knew that at the beginning, you know? Yeah, that is very true. 
you know, it, it went on for several seasons and I have a dear friend, Chloe, she's going to kill me. Love you, Chloe. But she, we literally be in the office together and she basically played all that, like from season one, all the episodes of America's Next Top Model. And we would just have conversations about some of the themes that would come up. And there were, there was some, like, there were some very deep moments there, especially with the girls and some of the things that they were going through, but then also some really interesting, cool challenges, like the deadly sins, which is like one of my favorite episodes. But do you have like a moment that you recall that was very impactful or, or one of your favorites, one of your favorite episodes or moments from the show? I mean, to be honest, I, yeah, many is the answer. So to many. That, <laughs> is, is the answer to that question. I mean, you know, I really enjoyed being on the show. <laughs> I really had a good time. I think it was evident. I think it was yeah. evident that we were having a good time making that show. <laughs> For sure. You know, it, it was a fun show to make. I mean, it was what we all did. It was what we all understood. We all passionate about it. We all yeah. got to travel all around the world together. We didn't just do one or two or three or four or five or six or seven or eight epic seasons. We did, you know, dozens of seasons. I mean, it was unheard of. You know, wow. it was a massive show. You know, and we were all over the world and we syndicated and then did versions in every other country too. So there was British Next Top Model and Australia's Next Top Model, Germany's Next Top Model. So wild. It was ended up making in this huge juggernaut of a machine that you, we were connected to. And, you know, I've gone on to work on various other, you know, I was one of the guys on Holland's Next Top Model for years. You wow, know? I didn't I also, know that. Yeah, and, and, and I've worked on, you know, Australia's Next Top Model, New Zealand's Next Top Model. Mm -hmm. you know, I've been on Mexico's Next Top Model, Finland's wow. Next Top Model, Russia's Next Top Model, so on and so forth. You know, wow. So there's this, you can literally could be doing Top Model your entire life every week, no matter <laughs> so what, somewhere, true. you know, because there were so many versions <laughs> of it, you know, it's like, you, you name it, Philippines Top Model and Thailand's yeah. Top Model and, you know, went on and on and on. But, you know, yeah, I had... You know, one of my favorite shoots that we ever did was one of the ones that we did in Spain when I was in the um, in the actual bullring. Oh it was my just god! Such an incredible experience. <laughs> it was. It's, it's it became a very famous became a very famous one because Carradi cheekily told me to pull the stick that I was holding out of yep, my ass or yep, something, and yep. it, it, you know that that became the, the, the tagline of the whole thing. And I remember, you know, I actually hardly heard her say it. And one of the producers in my ear said, "Did you hear what Carrie just said?" And I was kind of almost like, "What?" And they were like, "She told yeah. she said you have to pull that stick out of your ass because she muttered it." And so, and I, she was, and I was like, "Really?" And I was like, "Carrie did you say?" You know, like that and, is so that's how it actually came about. And I actually thought it was quite funny. Actually, at the time, I thought it was quite amusing because she had such a spunky character that she was cheeky enough to be and audacious enough. But then the whole thing played out like she was rude. You know, she said that to you. And how dare she say that to you? And what would happen if she was on, you know, which was more tongue in cheek than anything else. And, you know, but it, it played out well on the show. And there was an element of truth to that, because ultimately, if you were on a real photo shoot and you were to say something like that to the photographer, he may not take it the right way. And it's not really a smart thing to say, but it was, you know, that's how we played it. But there's, there's two sides to every story. And, and, you know, it was Carity and I have been great friends ever since. And we joke about it on social media all the time. If you'll ever see her comment on my post, she'll almost always mention the word stick somewhere in the comment. I love uh, that, it. For those of you who are fans of the show know exactly what she's talking about. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, it was a great shoot, and you know, we got to you know shoot with this you know actual bull in a bull ring, and um, and, and yeah, so it was just an amazing moment all around. That is wild. That is so wild. Um, I remember that episode. I was scared. I was like, oh my God, this is like dangerous. Like, this is real. <laughs> like, they're taking risks actually, on the I, show. The only person who got hit by the bull was me. So, <laughs> the, the, the models, you know, we were, it was all played out like the models are going to get hit by the bull, you know. And of oh, course, they, you know, we, although we did bring the bull out with the models out there, it was, it was a composite photograph that was made up of the bull charging. And then the models modeling without the bull. And then we kind of put it all together after the fact. But I was there having to take all the pictures. But at one point, I was not happy with what I was achieving with the bull charging me down. And I had three matadors in the ring with me. And I remember my assistant was like, okay, we've got to run now. And I would get up and run and run behind this protective screen that was that's in the bull ring. And the bull would basically pound up against it, shake it, and all this dust would come down. And you realize there was a sort of 2,000-pound bull, you know, Really trying to kill you on the other side of the screen. They would put the bull away and then release it again and it'd come running out. And I was taking photographs as the bull charged at me. And I, I just realized that I had perhaps a few more seconds before I needed to get up to run. And in the end, I, my very last time, I took that liberty and my assistant said, Go now. And I carried on <laughs> shooting. He was like, Go now. And, and then I didn't. And he literally grabbed the camera out of my hands, out of my face, and ran with it. And left me sitting like on the ground, and I looked up, and of course, with the lens and everything else, oh my god! It's just how close the bull was to me, and it was charging me down. And I stood up, turned my back, and it went right past me, and its horn just nicked the back of my shirt, ripping it and slicing my back with a, a, a cut which bled, and and it missed me. But, and then the manadors jumped in, and they were like, they got the bull, they they corralled it and got it away, and they came up to me, and I remember very vividly. You know, as I thought, oh dear, I've, 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 you know, I've lost their trust because I didn't do what they'd asked me to do, which was get up wow. when they told me to, and I had stuck my stuck to it and stayed in there. And they all got around me, all these three matadors in their garb, and they, you know, with their hats on and their, you know, their outfits. And I, I was like feeling really bad, like I had, <laughs> I had like a bad, like a naughty child. And they looked at me and they said, "Mr. Barker, you have the heart of a bull." And, they yes. and they're like, you're one of us. And they gave me this big hug. And I remember thinking like, how funny. I thought I was going to get told off. And actually I'd impressed them because that's exactly how they would, what they would have done. I freaking love it. That's awesome. Uh, well, I, you know, I know we're, we're about to wrap up very soon, but I just have to ask, you did this really amazing campaign recently. Uh be brave, which is an inclusive athletics line. Like, what inspired you to become a Special Olympics champion ambassador? Which I had no clue. I was like, oh, I had no idea that you were involved with that because you're involved in so with so many great nonprofits and nonprofit work. So, what inspired you to be a part of this? You know, first of all, thank you for, for bringing it up. It was a really um, wonderful campaign to photograph, and you know, I've been involved with health, wellness, and fitness for some time. I have a new platform, Vive, that I'm launching, which is a aggregator of best-in-class um, in, in a curated fashion of health, wellness, and fitness experts, trainers, and brands, all on one platform launching next year. Um, but I am also one of the creators of a, of a gym and a founder of a gym called The Dog Pound, 
which I have, we have one in New York and one in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, that was a lot of fun doing. And I, 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 we started that seven years ago and I've been very involved with it. I was the CMO there for the first three years when we opened it. And, you know, it, it was really my first involvement in the fitness arena and kind of got me interested in it. And, you know, when you think of sort of Special Olympics, and, and you know, you, you, for me, I, I've always thought that health, wellness, and fitness should be for everybody, and that you know, it, it's not fair that many people feel either discriminated against or stigmatized when it comes to fitness, health, and wellness. That they don't perhaps see themselves there. That they say, you know, oh, I'm not. If I went to a gym, I might feel embarrassed, or I might be people might look at me because I'm not in perfect condition, I'm not in perfect shape, and I, I want to change that. You know, I, I wanted to level the playing field and the more i learned about special olympics you know the extraordinary work that they do with people with intellectual disabilities you know that everybody has their story everyone has the ability to teach you something and you know all too often we think that we we can only learn from people that you know we think are, are of a certain type and ultimately there's you can learn from everybody and anybody out there and you know i, I had the, the when i was asked if i would be a champion ambassador it was then, well, what would I do? And they were working on, you know, a guy from fashion, what's he doing working with Special Olympics specifically? I don't have a, a sport, I do. But they had a program with Parsons School of Design where they were collaborating with the athletes to create this inclusive uh, collection of sportswear. Um, and it was just the most amazing program where they were, you know, I helped mentor both the designers and the athletes through the process uh, and, you know, it was really just an amazing experience. And then it, and it culminated in uh, a photo shoot when the actual pieces were created. The, the athletes got to wear them. I photographed it on them. It's called Be Brave, uh, which is a part of the Special Olympics motto. And, um, you know, it, it, and to watch these young athletes step out in their clothes that they'd help design and collaborate with these young designers it took a lot of courage and bravery to step in front of my camera and then to really rock it. And they did an incredible job. And the amazing thing here is, is that the clothes that they produced are inclusive, as in they're not just for people for, on the Special Olympics, but they are, in fact, for everyone. We can all wear them. And that was sort of so brilliant and so genius. It's like all too often we, we design for a certain group, for a certain niche, but actually to be truly inclusive is to design for all and to design for everybody. And I think for a lot, for all too long, you know, the fashion industry is designed for people who are sort of stick skinny kind of models who are not realistic or representative of the people who are actually going to wear them or people that wear clothes in general. And so, you know, the more we talk about this, the more we open this up, the more we actually act and do um, and, you know, allow people to be visible, to be seen and heard uh, and, and to be included um, that, that is really this, what we need to be about. And, and I, you know, the fashion industry has been about taking risks. And I, for me, campaigns like this are so important, so crucial. And it, it was an honor to do. And we're actually about to embark on our second one. So it's been, it was very, very cool and very successful. That's amazing. I, I absolutely love that. Fashion is for everyone. Well, thank you, Nigel, so much for being on a fashion moment. You actually have a podcast yourself, correct? I do, but you have to have a cocktail when you come and see me. Um, so. Yes, <laughs> Keenan, Keenan filled us in a little bit, but we want to hear more. <laughs> yeah, no, it's called the Shaken and Stirred Show, 
Um, and uh, it's sort of a, a play on the bond, shaken, not stirred, but we are shaken and stirred. And it's with a very good uh, old friend of mine who's a, a school buddy of mine from when I was 14 years old, and we've been friends ever since. And we it's a sort of celebrity interview show over cocktails, and we get into the, the cocktail, we get into the alcohol business, and then we get into their lives and their careers. Uh, and it's uh, a lot of fun. It's a good laugh. We have a good giggle. Sometimes we get deep, but we, we always, we, we sort of promise that we'll make you laugh and cry. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's really very lighthearted and fun. Um, but uh, yeah, check it out, please. It's called The Shaken and Stirred Show. I love it. We definitely will. And we will continue to watch all of your amazing work and support your projects. I'm super excited about your platform next year. And also the, the gym you mentioned in New York. Called The Dog Pound. Yes, the dog pound. So everyone check it out. Thank you so much, Nigel, for being on the show. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. All the best. Thanks so much for joining me for this week of A Fashion Moment. If you like what you hear, we'd love for you to join our community of listeners and spread the word about the show. We also want to hear from you. Share your favorite fashion moments and dream guests with us by sending an audio clip or email to a fashion moment podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tag us on Instagram at a fashion moment and you could be featured on next week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and let us know what you think. Until then, see you next time for another fashion moment. Podcast production by Rebecca Rashid and John Taylor Williams. Digital media production by Megan Porras. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Patrick Patrickios for their song, Hot Coffee.